You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Standing just long enough for us to read the text we're going to focus on today, even though we will move around a little bit, I'd like you to go to Romans chapter 4. Romans is a, a glorious unfolding of the eternal plan of God. It not only shows how big and powerful and ruling our God is, it, it shows us next to him as hopeless. But the wonderful thing about the word of God is in showing us that hopelessness on our own, it shows us hope. It shows, that there, shows us there's only one place to go. So as we study faith today, we remember or should remember that this is not something we work up in ourselves. We finally looked around long enough to find the right answer. It's God has found us and shown us there really is no choice here, friends. There's no place else you can turn. Romans chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first eight verses, even though we'll not study all of those today. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray and then you can be seated. Our Father, open our eyes. We ask that you would uh, melt cold, stony hearts. We come in with lots of biases and, and lots of baggage from our week. And uh, so often we're not, we're not in a good position coming here. So because we've asked, stir us up. Bring us to respect this as your word. Help us to walk away from here having seen you, having heard from you, and having been given hope to step into this week, knowing that you are, you are worthy to fall on, worthy to lean on, worthy to cast our entire sinful, weak bulk on. So change us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So we are, in case, the light's in my eyes, I can't always see if somebody's visiting. So in case you've walked into this series, we're on the third part of a series uh, of the the solas of the Protestant Reformation. We are 500 years away from the, the date when Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, nailed to the door, which was a, a public Uh, a public bulletin board, nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, 95 statements, 95 theses. And from from this, we'll call it protest, 
the, the Protestant Reformation in, reaction, in reacting to the Church of Rome and its bad practices and its unbiblical theology uh, launched something that it, the, the good parts of it, we, we owe our heritage theologically to those who rediscovered the authority of the scriptures. And so we started with sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our final authority for what we believe and how we behave. Uh, sola gratia last week is that, that we are saved by God's grace. In other words, it is his work. He is the pursuer, we're not the pursuer. And this third one we cover, and these aren't always covered in the same order, but I, I'm doing this by design. Sola fide, salvation by faith alone, is probably, uh, in some ways, the most controversial. Uh, I, on, as the, on the board of directors of a, a non-denominational ministry, I know that there have been clergymen who have told people from the church, they believe sola fide, you can't work there. And, and uh, we believe in salvation by faith and works, and so you can't be a part of a ministry where they, um, where they believe in salvation by faith alone. What I'm going to do, uh, it, we are going to look at Scripture. We're going to look at, at quotes from, uh, from Bible teachers from the past and the present. But I want you to understand, before we go into this, this is not a cold, sterile doctrine. And it does make a difference. In fact, the book of Galatians was written... Uh, in, in such strong terms against people who wanted to add to, to faith as a condition for salvation. There were people in Paul's day who followed him around. We could very easily have spent time in Galatians this morning as anywhere else. Uh, there were people who followed Paul around and said, well, yeah, you need Jesus. You need faith in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need these other, other things. You need to become Torah observant. If you're really going to be saved... And Paul called that another gospel. When we say there's anything that we can do to merit God's salvation, faith plus something else, if there's anything we can do to merit God's salvation, that's another gospel. And Paul said, if we, meaning we apostles, or an angel from heaven come to you preaching any other gospel other than the one you, than the one you have received, let him be accursed. Those are really strong words. That tells me that God takes this faith alone thing pretty seriously. That, that this, this gospel that exalts the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is vital for us to understand as just ordinary people walking in this world. I had an experience over the last, actually it stretched into the last two weeks because I... Uh, for relaxation, I've been uh, cutting wood and my family's been loading it into my truck out of the, the Cox farm out in their woods and we've been truckload after truckload bringing it home. And uh, in an ill-timed uh, trip to the woods, I, I buried my truck in mud uh, a little over a week ago. And uh, I've learned uh, four-wheel drive trucks are really, really good but they get more stuck than cars because you work harder. You just assume four-wheel drive will get you out of anything. And finally, after shoveling and digging and, and realizing that some of what I was doing was just making things worse, I, I called uh, a, a local farmer who is a friend of mine, and a lot of you uh, know this farmer, and he said, oh, everybody gets stuck sometimes. That's why I have tractor. So... He, he didn't say why I have tractor. He, he, he said why I have a tractor. So that's what tractors are for. So he came and it's been a while since I've, I've been pulled out of a lot of circumstances, but, but he came and 
there was just an assumption on his part that I wasn't going to help, other than I was in my truck, it was running. I thought, see, do I put it in drive? I've got it in four low, and, and I just, I, I put it in neutral, because I realized this is how I got myself into this mess, and so it's in neutral, and I'm just, I'm just steering, and he, I mean, it was just moments, and I'm, I'm on solid ground with my truck. But the reason I, I'm starting with that particular illustration is because after this is over, how much help did I give? And for that matter, what choice did I have? The, the gracious rescuer had the means to rescue me. I'm the one in trouble. In fact, the more I worked, the more trouble I got into. And I was, <laughs> putting it in drive would have done me no good. It was simply trusting that there's a rescue in front of me that's going to bring me out. That's, that's one way of illustrating this. If, if we bring it a little bit closer to home uh, for a lot of us, if you've ever seen a father invite a toddler to jump into his arms from a, a raised platform or a, a diving board or the side of a swimming pool or a dock, you've seen a variety of reactions, right? There are some children, and I had one out of nine who did this, they just fling themselves at daddy or mama, but sometimes recklessly into the air with full confidence that they're not going to come down into loving arms and, and this is going to be okay or they're not going to drown or they're not going to hit their head on the floor. Dad's going to come through before they crash, but others refuse. <laughs> it's just absolutely, there is no way I am jumping from this height into your arms now that says more about what they think of what's waiting at the bottom than how much faith they do or, or don't have. But I'll call that little faith or, or no faith. But I think still more want to jump because they understand I'm not going to stand here all day and it's more desirable to, be, des desirable to be down there than up here. But I'm afraid of what might happen and so I'm hesitating and in the end, I'm just going to make two observations before we finish this, okay? In the end, only those who jump get caught. And the skill is not in the jumper, but in the catcher. So when we are talking about salvation by faith alone, uh, it, this really works the same with faith in the promises of God. Your landing is only as good as the one who catches you. And that means, as Jonathan Edwards said, and I quoted this last week as well, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Biblically, we would say uh, there is, this is all over the place, and, and uh, one of the clearest statements in Scripture about salvation by faith alone is, in fact, a statement about the conversion of Abraham. He took him outside, and meaning the Lord took Abraham outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be or so shall thy seed be. To whom is he speaking? He's talking to an old man who's married to an old woman and they have never had a child in the natural way. And yet the text says that he believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That, that may sound like you know, lofty theological language, but, but please get this, Christian. If you don't understand righteousness and how we get it, 
you don't understand what salvation is about. There, this is not Abraham's righteousness where he's saying, I had this great quality of faith in God. See, and look what I've done. Abraham had done a lot of good things. In fact, the, the Sunday school flannel graph that I grew up with, we studied a lot about Father Abraham and how he left Ur of the Chaldees because God spoke to him. Do you realize that all of those things that Abraham did, including mustering this small army and rescuing his nephew Lot and defeating these enemies, all of these things were done before this point. Abraham did not have the righteousness God requires until right here. He took God at his word. And of course, prophetically, he's ultimately looking forward to the cross of Christ, but he didn't understand that. What I'm saying is, is the scripture says through Moses in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham was, received the righteousness of God by faith. And he still did wrong things later on, but he accepted it by faith. Romans chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. This is what Sola Fide says. You have nothing to offer God. Your faith isn't even something you can muster up on your own. The, the faith that you exhibit is like the child jumping, like the, the guy with the stuck four-wheel drive, just depending on something bigger and better, more powerful, more reliable, because I do nothing but get myself into a mess if I seek to do this on my own. So Paul ended verse 16, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And then Romans 1, 16 and 17. The apostle writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So let's, let's give you a definition and we'll, we'll go on here and, and talk a little bit more about uh, not only the history of this, but why this makes a big difference in what you believe. Why the reasons for the Protestant Reformation largely still exist. Sola fide is the biblical teaching which says that sinners may stand justified before God by believing God's saving message apart from any human effort. See, this is an exalting faith. And if you've ever been in this position, you say, I just need more faith. That's not, that's not a bad thing to say. But you can put a whole lot of faith in the wrong place. I put a whole lot of faith in a four-wheel drive truck that got me nothing but buried in a mud pit. I had faith. If I'd gone all the way down, I could have said, he died in faith. But, but this, this is the key. It's, it's talking about the glory of God. The quality of human faith is not what's being exalted here in sola fide. So if you say, oh, well, finally we got to our stuff. Uh, no, this is, this is all about God's glory and his power all of the, the solas exalt the majesty of God himself. So the heart of sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria magnifies the creator, not the creation. This shows him to be exceedingly good. 
This shows him to be exceedingly powerful and glorious. And when we live in that light, that's not heady. That's practical. I live out my life understanding that everything is about him. So the question really comes down to, how do you get the gift of salvation? And, uh, and I'm saying using the Bible language that we've already read this morning, salvation is credited or imputed to you when you entrust yourself to the only one who can give it to you. So here's another way. I'll give you a third way of illustrating this teaching. You find yourself trapped on the sixth floor of a burning building. Every floor below you is engulfed in flames. And from the window, you see 20 firefighters around a giant tarp. You say, no, there aren't that many around that tarp. It's the only picture I could find. And so they're shouting, jump. Do you trust him? I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> you decide there is no other way. I can stay here and go down in flames or try to come up with another way out of this thing. But you jump and you're rescued. So here's the question. You jump and you are rescued. Who gets the glory? And, and I'm, I'm saying that because we need to ask this question. What saved you, the jump or the firefighters? Was it, was it the rescue at the bottom? Was that what saved you or, or was it the quality of your jump? You know, the guys applaud. They put you down at the end and say, boy, that, that, was, a, that was a wonderful jump. That was a very graceful fall from that burning building. And that's why we rescued you. See, having faith believing, trusting is not our righteousness. It isn't like, well, I was smart enough to follow Jesus. I'm, I made such a good choice. It, it's the jump. Faith is the jump. Trust is the jump that God uses to bring you to his righteousness. You do not have it on your own. It is his and this is what Luther discovered. There's no way of escape. And it is not the power of your trust that saves you. It's your trust that connects you to what saves you. That is how we can explain his faith was credited to him for righteousness. He believed, in, but there was only way, one way for him to be connected to the salvation. He, he needed to trust him. So Martin Luther studied the text of Romans in Greek. If, if you learn the history of what Luther was doing in Wittenberg, he was an Augustinian monk and he was teaching seminarians. He was teaching people uh, who were going to become priests. And as he was studying Roman, he had a little bit of a leg up because he had learned Greek. Because the New Testament had been written in Greek, the Old Testament had been written in Hebrew, and so many theologians in previous years had only studied in Latin. So Luther is actually going to the original languages of, of the scripture and he's realizing some things. He came to realize that justification is a legal transaction. It's not an effort to be made righteous. In, in other words, when you read that word justify or justified in the Bible, this is not being made righteous, like I'm going to work together and with God and, and with, with my, my faith and works and with God working, I'm eventually going to become righteousness. He realized that this is a declaration that you could still be a sinner in this life 
and yet be declared righteous. He realized that, and, and okay, here we go. I, I am going to throw out one more Latin phrase just because it's, it's important in understanding. It's, and it's a, a, a foundational phrase to what happened in Martin Luther's life and what helps us understand scripture. He realized that a person can be simul justus et peccator, which means at the same time justified and a sinner. This this drove the church of Rome and still does to this day. That, that phrase w- would drive them theologically crazy because they could say, no, how can you be a sinner and righteous at the same time? And, and Luther said, it's because of what the Bible says. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, the righteous man shall live by faith. And that was a quote from Habakkuk. That, that there is a man who, though he still is in his sinful body, though he still sins, he has trusted in the one who can save him. And having studied that text, here's what Martin Luther said. I began to understand that the justice of God meant that justice by which the just man lives through God's gift, namely faith. In other words, this is, we've been connected to God by faith, not by our works. So he says this is what it means. The justice of God is revealed by the gospel. A passive justice, in other words, it's something God grants, A passive justice with which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. He who through faith is just shall live. And that's that's his translation. It's a translation of his translation into English. But listen to what Luther said when he made this discovery. Now please get this. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and it entered paradise itself through open gates. This is a man. You wonder why he speaks in such dramatic terms? Because this is a man who had poured himself. You, you talk about Christians who, who are kind of lackadaisical and, and really don't take their faith seriously. This is a guy who, while an unbeliever, while not possessing the righteousness of God, did everything he could think of to gain it. He crawled steps and praying. He would sleep in front of the altar at night. He was determined to, to pray more and eat less and sin less than anybody else around him. And still his sin remained. And he would cry out to God, oh, my sin, my sin, my sin, oh, my sin, my sin, my sin. Because he began in his own testimony to hate the God he was, whose favor he was trying to earn. This is why he can say, I discovered this. I rediscovered this teaching of what the apostle said in Romans. I am still a sinner, but someone died in my behalf. The only one who ever wasn't a sinner took my place. His testimony was, was Paul's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Martin Luther and a lot of other Bible teachers put this debate in, in clear terms and we could have gone on and on with quotes and that's not the purpose of, of what I'm doing here, but I'll, I'll just give you a handful of them now. Luther says, we are in truth and totally sinners. With regard to ourselves and our first birth, contrarywise, insofar as Christ has been given for us, we are holy and just totally. How can you be that? He says, hence from different aspects, we are said to be just and sinners at one and the same time. 
You cast your sins from yourself and onto Christ when you firmly believe that his wounds and sufferings are your sins to be born and paid for by him. Let me tell you one way this becomes really practical for us. A lot of us in sharing the gospel, and I know, I know community demographics is changing and we're running into more and more adults who really know nothing of Jesus, know nothing of the Bible, and, and that is true. And yet, a lot of the people you share the gospel with have some kind of religious background. And some of them really seeing the weight of their own guilt and what they've done, and they maybe have some really bad thing on their conscience, and, and they are in, in many ways miserable, and they, they can't figure out how to, how to escape this misery. I'm not saying, oh good, my friends are miserable, but I, I am saying when we are sharing the gospel with people, we have the only hope for them that can be offered. We can say, you know, all of that sinfulness and all of that weight, you're carrying if you've got a lot of time, you can read them Pilgrim's Progress. But, but you've got this, this weight you're carrying. And the scripture says that the Lord Jesus carried sin for everyone who would turn to him. So Luther, Luther explained it in better terms than I could. You cast your sins from yourself and onto Christ when you firmly believe that his wounds and sufferings are your sins. Jesus died for sinners. If you're one of those, there's hope for you. Spurgeon, 300 years later, a little better than that, said the way of reaching this state of justification is not by tears, nor prayers, nor humblings, nor working, nor Bible reading, nor church going, nor chapel going, nor sacraments, nor priestly absolution, but by faith, which faith is a simple and utter dependence and believing in the faithfulness of God, a dependence upon the promise of God, because it is God's promise and is worthy of dependence. And, and one more from the past hundred years, J.I. Packer says, Rome had said God's grace is great for through Christ's cross and his church salvation is possible for all who will work and suffer for it. So come to church and toil. But the reformers said God's grace is greater. You notice that? God's grace isn't just great. God's grace is greater for through Christ's cross and his spirit Salvation, full and free with its limited guarantee of eternal joy, is given once and forever to all who believe. So come to Christ and trust and take. And that is the call to you if you're hearing these words and you wonder, am I saved or am I not? Could I really be forgiven? Because I've done this and this and this and this. And the call is come to Christ, trust him, take him. Take him at his word. It's trustworthy. He, he doesn't turn people away. I don't want to, to go through this message, though, without giving the other side. And when I say the other side, I'm not saying, well, equal and valid arguments, and we all have our own truth. I, I am going to take this down, uh, and, and, but, but I, I will say it. There are times when you believe something, and you come across a verse in the Bible that's like, wait a minute, that looks like it says exactly what, uh, the opposite of what I believe, and so some would call this a, a problem text. It's actually James chapter two, and there are a handful of verses, but this would summarize what the, the Roman Catholic apologists are still opposing vigorously, sola scriptura. And I'm not saying we ought to be mean and, and nasty, but I, I am saying it, it's, it's worth understanding that, that this is a problem. This is why the book of Galatians was written they still vigorously oppose this doctrine that, I'm, that we've been talking about, sola scriptura, and, and for that matter, sola fide. And they do reject Protestants, and I think they have a point here. 
There are a lot of Protestants who say, you guys believe in salvation by works. Friends, that is not what the Church of Rome teaches. The Church of Rome has never taught that works alone save us. In fact, they booted out Pelagius and others who taught that. The real disagreement is not that they teach salvation by works, but they teach salvation by faith and works. And that is why the book of Galatians was written. It is another gospel. It is a false gospel when, when we teach people that, that when you couple faith and works, you can be saved. And their defense comes from both church tradition and their understanding of texts like this. Are you ready? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You say, whoa, man, that is exactly the opposite of what you've been saying for the first 25 minutes of this message. Teach the controversy. It's, it's okay. You don't, we don't have to hide from, from text because if this, if this really says what a lot of people believe it says, then, uh, well, first of all, you have a major contradiction in the Bible. And second of all, we're, we're messed up. Because we're, we're saying that the work of Jesus was enough and our complete confidence can be in him. And so pulled out of context, you say, but isn't James contradicting Paul? I will tell you this. Uh, when we speak of Martin Luther and admire him, remember he was a, a fallible human like the rest of us. And because of this verse and a handful of others, Martin Luther said, this is an epistle of straw. James does not belong uh, in the scriptures. But I, I want to I point this out, and we could, have, we could have spent a long time this morning just on this end and could have spent an entire lesson uh, on James chapter 2 and the handful of verses surrounding verse 24. But, but let me just say this. If you isolate this from the context, it appears to contradict at least Reformed theology, if not Paul himself. Here's one simple way to understand this apparent contradiction. It is to recognize that the word justified is used in different ways in, in Scripture, as well as outside of Scripture. So uh, let me simply, let me state this simply, and then I'll, I'll put a little support behind this. The word justified is used of a legal declaration by God. We are declared righteous on the basis of the merits of Jesus on, on the cross. We have been declared not guilty because we have put our trust in Christ. But there are, uh, there are other ways the word is used. For instance, vindicated. Uh, that is a legitimate translation. W when I'm vindicated, that's usually not between me and God, is it? It's like, I have been accused of this and this and this and this. And finally, the truth comes out. I finally reasoned with the guy or the gal enough. Or finally, somebody else stood in on behalf and said, no, that, that's not true. And you're, you breathe this big sigh of relief because you've been vindicated. You've been proven that, that you were right all along. In other words, what was hidden has come out. And, and I am arguing that James is completely going at this from that angle. And when you read it, James is saying, you say you have faith? Show me. Show me your faith by your works. James is talking about justification before human eyes, not, not before God. He's not contradicting Paul. He's, he's actually complimenting. We should be thankful for what the book of James says because it really helps us clarify that, that faith 
works, that faith results in something different in us. Justification is an act of God by which he declares men and women righteous based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as their substitute. But Paul is using the word to describe uh, Paul in, in Romans and in Galatians and other places is using the word to, to describe the imputed righteousness of Christ. But in Matthew eleven nineteen, Matthew twelve thirty seven, Luke seven twenty nine, Luke seven thirty five, Luke ten twenty nine, Luke eighteen fourteen, you notice in the Synoptic Gospels, the word was used uh, a lot of times by the Lord Jesus to to talk about someone being vindicated, someone being proved right. Not declared right, but proved right. And simply put, Paul used the term from God's perspective and James used the word from man's perspective. So in simpler terms, God declares sinners righteous when he sees their faith. But you and I cannot see that. That faith is only shown to human judges by works. And so here was in in an extreme summary that we could have gone on long, long, long over this. But Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Genuine saving faith results in works. Genuine saving faith results in a change of life. We don't come into a right relationship with God by doing things. But, but once we have trusted in the death of his son, there is a transformation that occurs or we call into question whether that faith was legitimate. So I read for you Romans 4, 1 through 8, and and one of the best texts that can be used to explain sola fide is right here. And so we'll, we'll move on through this text. What then shall we say that Abraham our father according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says that Abraham made a discovery. He wasn't out in search of what he found. He did not come from Ur of the Chaldees and go 500 miles or whatever it was across the desert following the the Euphrates River and, and arriving in the land God gave him. It wasn't that he was out looking for something. God was drawing him to this place. He was merely listening to the voice of God and discovered a, the, the way to be declared righteousness, but not like you might imagine. God didn't give Abraham a moral aptitude test, did he? God didn't give Abraham a list of deeds to perform in order, order to cover his sins. Have you ever done that? I've got to make up, make up for, for what I did. I've even known Christians who felt they had to punish themselves, like I disobeyed my mom and now I've got to punish myself with exercise or cutting or, or, or whatever. That, that is an attack on the finished work of Christ. You can't punish yourself enough for your sins. That's the whole point. Faith in Christ says, he paid it all. By his stripes, I'm healed, not by mine. By his extreme exercise in this world, I am healed. There is, you see how how many of our OCD things come out here. They're, They're revealed to be a really, in some ways, our own righteousness. This is teaching us something very different. Abraham did not, did not take a test or did not measure up. God simply spoke some hard to believe words and Abraham 
said, I'll take that. I'll take you at your word. And his discovery was made when he understood that God keeps his word. And by the way, it did result in works. Abraham offered his son Isaac as an outward demonstration. That vindicated his faith. That showed that he had legitimate faith. So Paul says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? Well, he made a discovery recorded right here in Genesis 15, 6, or quoted in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham was credited with a righteousness that was not his own. And that happened when he put his faith in the word of God. God spoke. He said, I will take you at your word. Have you done that? Have you really taken God at his word and said, it's enough? It's enough. That's not only saving faith, that's living faith. As you walk as a Christian, you continually need to be saying, this is, this is so hard for me to believe, but I, I, I do believe you're at work in my life right now, even though I, I'm in the dark, I can't see this. I really do believe you're faithful and you're providing a way out of this temptation, but it is hard because this has consumed me for so long. Faith is taking God at his word. This may not seem like a profound discovery for you, by the way, but what happens when you see the alternative? The alternative to justification by faith alone, you know what it is? Performance. If someone from one of the cults or, or from, from some of the highly, highly conservative religious groups with a, with a high outward standard that people are held to and controlled by, ask them, if they're honest about the joy that they have, there's a perfection, a performance that's demanded. And if you've ever been there, you know, I'm never enough. I always have to do more. I don't pray enough. I don't tithe enough. I don't go to church enough. I don't, I don't share the gospel enough. I don't, I, that's not enough. There's gotta be more. And if somehow you arrive to the place where you say, now I have measured up, you've just become a Pharisee and you have, you have been the reason become the reason that the book of Galatians was written. The perfection that is demanded is something that even Abraham, the friend of God, didn't have. He couldn't measure up. So Paul says, well, what did Abraham find? Our forefather, and some would people, people would translate this, he's our forefather according to the flesh, or some would say, well, what did he find in his flesh? And uh, I, I'm honestly not sure which way to take that. It really means the same either way. Because Paul says if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Paul has said, where is boasting? Back in chapter three, where's boasting? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who among us can say, well, I'm not, I'm not quite as corrupt as that person next to me. If Abraham's outward behavior could change his guilty standing before God, he, he deserves the greatest recognition from the rest of us sinners that anyone else could give. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Yay, I've, I've made it to the top of the heap. But he says, but not before God. Because justification is a way for you to have a standing before the living God and you realize if you are honest in your heart of hearts, I don't. I have nothing to offer him that he wants or needs. Not before God, Paul says. I mean, I'm telling you, Abraham looks good to me. He left everything to follow the Lord from, from Ur and went all the way to Haran and then went on to Canaan. He received direct revelation from God. How many of you have had that? 
direct speaking, audible voice from the living God, the creator of the universe spoke to him. He built more than one altar for worshiping the Lord. God preserved him in Egypt. He enriched him in the Negev in in the desert in the south. He became a very, very wealthy man. He was a praying man. Put together a small army to to defeat Keterleomer's forces and rescue his nephew. And all of these works, but the scripture says he was not acquitted of his sins until after these events. You say, why? (laughs) That's the whole point of, of this teaching of the Apostle Paul and the whole point of of us taking time to look at this. God's standard of righteousness is impossible for even the best among us to attain. Do you believe that? You don't measure up, friend. I don't measure up. That's a hopeless place until you realize that's what takes us to the cross of Christ. Abraham's works may have looked good to men, but Paul says, but not before God. Holy God was entirely distinct from his creation before Adam sinned. In other words, we don't don't look at Adam and Eve as little gods and and as as one of the major cults teaches, like we're going to become gods eventually. No, no. Even a sinless man and woman were very distinct from the holy God, their creator. He was entirely distinct before Adam sinned and after sin. It's like, here's the distance and now the gulf just becomes immense and there's no way to bridge that gap. What sinner can boast before him? Paul says, now you may have something to brag about in your life, comparing yourself to the people around you. Uh, but you have no boast before God and this important question for what does the scripture say? I mean, that, that appeal really ought to be our constant resort. Paul believed in sola scriptura. If we're gonna find answers to these controversial questions, let's just, let's just find out what does church authority say? Let's see, can't we put it on the church website? What, what TV shows we should watch and not watch and what movies we should go to, what things we should or shouldn't take into our bodies. And, and let's, let's just go to that, that human authority and to that tradition Paul's appeal was to the scripture, as was that of the Lord Jesus and the other apostles. This appeal really ought to be our constant resort when we're pondering questions about how you live life in a sin-cursed world, how I resolve these questions and interpret the world around me, wondering what to believe about how a holy God would dare justify sinners and allow somebody who's still a sinner into his presence. What does the scripture say? Having, having trouble in your home? What does the scripture say? Your emotions are out of control and you, you, can't, you can't get out of the depths? Well, what does the scripture say? Got a habit you can't beat? What does the scripture say? God spoke and Abraham believed. And, and today God speaks through his word. Can you believe it? What does the scripture say about that which is bringing you down, tormenting you now? Well, the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. <laughs> the, the coming dissertation in Romans on, on faith and righteousness really properly defines what faith is and what righteousness is. Biblical faith, and by the way, that's the same root as our word believe, is not a quality that makes us independent. 
That's the goal of people who urge you to believe in yourself. That's the goal of the word faith movement that, that, makes, that, that says you can speak with your words, you can create things with your words. That's, that's not biblical faith. Faith must have an object. The child who jumps must have a rescuer at the bottom or great faith is useless. The four-wheel drive stuck in the mud must have a reliable rescuer or, or getting in the driver's seat and putting it in a neutral makes no difference. The person on the sixth floor of a burning building may jump in great faith, but unless there's a rescue at the bottom, it's deadly to jump. Abraham wasn't just a man with faith. He had faith in God. He got a legal standing before God that's only credited to the accounts of people who take God at his word or will say, believe. I'm saying there's great hope in believing this and I, if I haven't um, persuaded you to, to at least say, I really do think this means a lot today and this is relevant. This isn't just something to argue about in a Bible class or a seminary class. Here's the hope of sola fide. First one is this. See, justification presupposes guilt. In other words, you don't need to be justified before the judge if, if you're okay. You don't need justification unless you've committed a crime. You are, friends, and I am in legal trouble with the only perfect judge. You are in a sorry state. But the discovery here, the hope here is that only guilty people can be justified before God. Your friends who've, who've supposedly uh, found the way. Remember Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> so you say, well, I, I'm that. I'm a sinner. Then turn. Then take him at his word. Only guilty people can be justified before God. If the weight of guilt is on you, that's, that's a step of hope for you. Here's another practical hope of this. God has the better way to change our standing before him. See, you and I have no goodness that impresses God. Even though around us there are a lot of good moral people by common grace, there are people who, who honestly, Christians like to hang around with some unbelievers more than they like to hang around with other Christians. There are some people who are just nice by common grace, but, but we're talking about a standing before God, not before men. Favorable, favorable comparisons with the people around you work really well because, I mean, be honest, you can always find somebody more messed up than you. The highest human standard of righteousness, though, falls short of the requirements for release. And here's the hopeful discovery. God has the better way to change our standing before him. You're not on your own in this. He provided a way for sinners to stand righteous before him, even though they're still sinners. There's one more part of this hope, and I, I, I want us to, to bring out the word righteousness again. It's this standard that, that only Jesus ever had, and you have to have that in order to stand guiltless before God. Righteousness must be imputed by God. And imputed means credited. It's a, it's a 
It's a financial term. Credited to your account. You need righteousness of someone else credited to your account. And the church of Rome years ago said, yeah, we believe in that. There were some people who were good enough to get to heaven. They had, they had more than enough. So it's like the, we, we seize their, their righteous assets and we have this bank of merit. And you people on earth can tap into that by buying indulgences. So you can get yourself out of purgatory. You can get your loved ones after they die out of purgatory because there's a lot of leftover righteousness. But the scripture has a, a, a better way of, of teaching us the reliable way of having righteousness credited to our account. Because all of those people who were really, really, really good didn't earn their way to heaven. There was no leftover And you and I are sunk unless there was a perfect one who would credit your account with his righteousness while you're still a sinner because you are. We're bankrupt and we have no means of getting righteousness from anyone living or dead. Only a benefactor with righteousness to credit can balance your books. And here's the hopeful discovery. You can cast your entire unrighteous bulk for mercy at the feet of the only one who is rich in mercy and righteousness. There's one way out. And it may seem illogical or unpleasant to bow the knee before the king of kings, but friends, that's, that's the only hope. That's why sola fide is, is not an irrelevant doctrine to your life right now. There is a place where you find p- peace hope, life, righteousness credited to your account that will change your standing before the God of the universe. Let's pray. And so our Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Show us, show us Jesus on the pages of scripture. Show us how satisfying his sacrifice was to you and and bring us to cast our sinful, unholy bulk at your feet. Beg you for the mercy that you've promised to give to all who believe. May that belief, that faith show up in works in our lives this week as a demonstration that you really have done something in us. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand together. Oh